to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I am the dog in this equation. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark Schmore. He is the duck. The ducks are sitting pretty at number three in the nation. But uh, I think all of dog, uh, all of dog nation out there, all Husky nation out there, is sighing a major breath of relief after uh, finally posting their first win of the season against uh, the hapless defense of Arkansas State. But at this point, as they say, Mark, we'll take it. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, well, anytime you claim a win over the Stony Brook Seawolves, you come in riding really high. So, you know, Oregon took care of of Wolfie, uh, the Seawolf, and, and his fellow Seawolves. So uh, feeling, feeling great about that. I'm curious with the Arkansas State game, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into that, but like what was on like Friday night, Saturday morning, what was your honest uh, fear level like in terms of like, was there any part of you that was like, oh, and three is actually a possibility. Like this, this might be really bad. Or were you kind of thinking like, no, they're going to write the ship this week, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, so first of all, I was out of town this weekend and didn't have access to watch the game. So I had to keep up with it via the ESPN app and Twitter, and then went back and tried to watch as much highlights as I could. Uh, after the weekend was over but with that being said you know I think the biggest biggest thing was we knew that uh, that this Arkansas State defense was pretty pretty porous I mean they had given up 55 points the week before to Memphis but on the other hand they also were leading the nation in scoring coming into the game uh, averaging close to around 50 points per game so the real question to me was can our offense just do enough to 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 not be completely ineffective and impotent like we were against Montana and uh, Michigan? So, you know, I felt like th- there's no way that we should lose, but I did feel like based on what we saw in weeks one and two, we certainly could lose. And, uh, you know, I think – once the ball kind of got got rolling, the dam broke loose, and uh, seven touchdowns later, you know, it, it it almost feels like wow, you know how how could we have been worried about this game? But again, if you live through the Montana and Michigan games, <laughs> it's not that hard to understand why some some fear might be there. Yeah, it seems like. Uh like you said, the dam broke early and it was just kind of, that's what this team needed to kind of get right. It's kind of like, like the, uh, the basketball player that's missing every shot and he goes to the free throw line and he sees it go through the net a couple times. And like, then he just, the confidence is back. Like in, in the, the swagger comes back a little bit. And I think the interesting thing now obviously is, is like, okay, well, how, how much does that continue? Like, is that still there? in the first quarter against Cal, like it was uh, against Arkansas State. But I don't, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. I'm, I'm sure we have much more to unpack about the, the win over Arkansas State here. Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the couple big storylines are that it's clear that there was a, an offensive philosoph- philosoph- yeah, philosophical shift from, uh, you, from Montana and Michigan compared to this Arkansas State team uh, game and in fact 
to the point that actually there were rumors kind of banding around on Twitter that uh, wide receivers coach Junior Adams and offensive line coach Scott Huff had actually taken over the play calling. Now, I don't believe that's actually the case. In fact, what uh, did uh, was revealed later on was that uh, John Donovan had moved up to the booth to do the play calling from there, which you know, that's pretty normal for most offensive coordinators, but for some reason, all of last year and for these first two games of, of this season, John Donovan had been doing the play calling from the sideline. Yeah. And I think there was a fear that maybe uh, the players didn't know him well enough to, for him to call from, from the booth. But I think that definitely uh, made a difference having him being able to see the whole field and, you know, philosophically, they came in with guns blazing. They, they, it was, it was pass first. It was vertical uh, oriented passing, not any of this kind of dink and dunk stuff. And uh, they were able to, to, to find a receiver who coming into this game had only one career catch and had not been able to uh, play at all up until this game. And that is uh, freshman Jalen McMillan, who was a highly uh, recruited uh, recruit coming in with the 2020 class, and um, and and he exploded for over 150 receiving yards in the first half, which really was the you know the the way that they were able to to break out and um, and, and take the lead in this game. So very encouraging from the standpoint of. We saw a vertical passing offense that we hadn't really seen. And we saw um, the return of sixth year running back senior Sean McGrew, who uh, who had been a healthy uh, scratch, maybe healthy absence is the better word to say it in games one and two. But he came in and provided a, a great jolt scoring two. Uh, rushing touchdowns to help contribute to this attack. So uh, a good offensive performance, which we weren't so sure we'd see, and a good defensive performance, which we all expected uh, coming into this game. Yeah, the the Jalen McMillan um, piece, that's that's the part I think as the uh, as the outsider, I'm most interested to see kind of, uh, is this an unlocking of a guy who's going to be a real weapon or is this kind of a career day against a bad defense that that doesn't necessarily carry over? But, uh, but it definitely seems like that was something that was just not there in their first two games was having some sort of a big play threat like that. So uh, it's good, certainly good for Husky fans to have him healthy and in the lineup and, and, and making plays. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's most likely some sort of a variance between the two extremes. I I don't anticipate he's going to be, um, you know, Drake London for the rest of the season, but can he provide something of a deep threat that we haven't had uh, thus far in the season? I think absolutely. And, Certainly, there's no doubt about it that Cal is going to have to account for him now after his game against Arkansas State. They're going to have to to probably shade a safety on him, and uh, hopefully that will open things up for the rest of the offense and, and offensive skill players to do what they need to do. But 
uh, you know, that we're still waiting on Rome Odunze, who is uh, very similar to Jalen McMillan. He's six foot three, you know, really fast, young receiver. Uh, he was actually more successful last year than McMillan was in their limited duty together, uh, especially against Stanford. So, you know, if, if Rome can come back and then with the emergence of Taj Davis and, and Giles Jackson, it could be a fairly nice, uh, you know, what's the word, quad, quadrant? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Quad of receivers. So, yeah, um, yeah so we'll see. But uh, certainly I think it's, it's a hesitant and, uh, you know, a hesitant enthusiasm towards what happened. But I think, as you mentioned, this week against Cal is going to really give us an idea as to what this team has really learned since Michigan. Yeah, and I think I, on the one hand, you say, well, a win's a win, you know, and they, they got the win, which is what they needed. Um, there's only so much confidence you can take from beating Arkansas State. But I do think it was really nice for the Huskies to win this game so convinced. I mean, 52 to 3 is a fun score to see up there because had they had they won this game, you know, uh, 28 to 21, or, you know, if it was kind of this game where it's tied at halftime and then they have to kind of pull it out in, in the second half or something like that, I think Husky fans would still be kind of in this state of agitation about why are things not changing. But I think to get like an emphatic, no doubt about it, they looked like the team that they were ranked to be at the beginning of the year, that at least kind of buys everyone a week now to just kind of take a deep breath, and okay, Pac-12 play is coming. Like, let's see how this new team can can perform going forward. So uh, Huskies, you know, they uh, they got it done against the Red Wolves of Arkansas State. They did what they were supposed to do for the first time this season. So that's encouraging. And yeah. uh, Oregon, of course, did what they were supposed to do against uh, Stony Brook. Uh, Mark, what was what was your takeaway from that game? Did did everybody come away healthy? Is there, you know, any, you know, uh, reason for concern after after that game? Yeah. So the big uh, health issue was that uh, Anthony Brown went out of the game at halftime and did not return. He was sacked twice right before the end of the first half. Which, if you're looking for kind of red flags, getting sacked twice in a row by Stony Brook after they didn't give up any sacks against Ohio State, uh, that's that's a little bit of a concern. But um, so Anthony Brown, it sounds like he was held out mostly for precautionary reasons. I don't think that there's any concern that it's going to be a, a thing that will affect him going forward. But uh, it got us got a chance to see the uh, five-star freshman Ty Thompson, who mm. came in and uh, and it was only a 17 to seven game at halftime. Uh, there was a significant weather delay in there with some lightning. And Warren, I'm always of the opinion that like once you throw a weather delay in, all bets are off as far as what either team is going to look like, whether there's going to be a crowd or not. Like we remember the the Washington Cal game that was, you know, um, affected. Uh, Clemson had a game this weekend with Georgia Tech that had a weather delay in the middle of it, and they only won 14 to eight or something. It just seems like weather delays are are weird. But anyway, the Ducks came out second half and uh, outscored them 31 to nothing with the freshman Thompson leading the way. So, um, you know, there, there are some people that are kind of picking apart the first half a little bit. Oh, why didn't we, why didn't we look better in the first half? I don't, 
I don't put a whole lot of stock into that. I think they, they did what they needed to do. Like nobody is going to remember that they only scored 17 points in the first half against Stony Brook. If, if they play well over the rest of the season and if they don't play well, that's, that's going to be what we point to. Not, not the first half against Stony Brook, but um, glad that Anthony Brown sounds like he's okay. And also glad that the uh, freshman Ty Thompson got some significant action and, and looked more than competent to, to step into that role if, if need be. So I guess that uh, if there was a debate that, that kind of settles the, the question as to who the number two is for Oregon. Yeah, they still list three different guys on their depth chart as kind of tied for that spot. But um, Thompson was the first guy that went in. And then uh, after him, I think it was Jay Butterfield got a few reps. And then the other guy that's in that is Robbie Ashford, who's also a baseball player. And he did not get any time. So while I think they feel like from a talent perspective, Ashford is good enough to be a backup, uh, the backup. I think that the reality is, is they have Thompson second string, Butterfield's the third string and Ashford is, is the fourth string, so. Got it, got it. Well, it'll be interesting now that the, the die has been cast and it's clear that Ty Thompson is the number two. It'll be interesting to see what happens to Butterfield and Ashford, you know, either during the season or, a, or after the season, knowing that they're you know they're they're further down on the depth chart well you know i was thinking about that uh i know we're going to hit up the utah quarterback situation a little later but uh with robbie ashford being a baseball player on the ducks baseball team who have a pretty good baseball team and that that's kind of his primary sport i was thinking that's actually probably in the ducks favor to keep him in the, the program team. if he's not named yeah. a starter you know, is that there's some other kind of anchor keeping you there. I think also having a senior in Brown that we know is leaving next year, it certainly gives, um, you know, the freshman reason to stick around and try to earn the job. Uh, But yeah, Butterfield maybe sees the writing on the wall and, and doesn't think he's going to have much of a chance to start, then, then you never know with these things now. Well, hey, let's do this. Let's um, let's review what happened in the rest of the Pac-12, and then we'll circle back and uh, preview the the UW uh, versus Cal game and uh, Oregon versus Arizona game. So, uh, probably the two big headlining games in the Pac-12 really were probably two of the best games in the top 25 this past weekend. Uh, first of all, being Fresno State over. UCLA, um, probably the most entertaining game of the entire weekend. Uh, Fresno State upsetting number 13, uh, UCLA 40 to 37 under the, the, the heroics of former University of Washington quarterback, Jay Kaner. Mark, what were your uh, takeaways from that uh, dramatic game? Well, I, I have seen this Fresno State team up close and personal because they played Oregon in, in week one and gave Oregon a really good game. We're ahead in the fourth quarter in that game. And I remember having a conversation with my father afterwards where he was very disappointed with how Oregon played because Fresno was picking up yards whenever they wanted and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember saying, uh, well, dad, part of that might be that Fresno, Fresno just might be really good. Like uh, it's not out of the question 
you know, historically for Fresno State to have a team that can compete with some of the better teams in the Pac-12. And I think this this game against UCLA kind of only serves to confirm that thesis that I think Fresno is is to be taken seriously as just a really good team, especially offensively. Um, they gave they gave Oregon a lot of problems. They moved the ball really well in the second and third quarters of that game. And then against UCLA, uh, late in the game, uh, you know, UCLA scored to, to take the lead with a little over a minute to go. And there was a sense in the moment that it felt like they'd left too much time for Fresno to come back down and, and grab the game winner. And so uh, I think they're an offense that, uh, that is definitely for real. I think Jake Hayner is gotta be on the short list right now of, of the quarterbacks having the best start to the season. And uh, it, it's not going to be easy for them. I think there are four or five teams in the Mountain West that could, could play with them and could, could potentially beat them. So I don't know that they run the table from here on out, but I think uh, they're very, very good. And, and UCLA coming off of a bye uh, still goes down to them. And I, I don't think it was fluky. Agreed. I think that that just as you said, this Fresno State is better than maybe originally anticipated. I, I know before the season began, as I was reviewing notes and and some of the major magazines on uh, you know the team previews, I thought to myself, "Wow, this Fresno State team could be really good based on the fact that they had almost all of their entire team coming back. They'd gotten some really uh, dynamic." Uh, playmakers uh, in the transfer portal and uh, Jake Hayner was really good last season in the limited amount of time that he had so you know it shouldn't be a total surprise that he's putting up some major numbers uh, this past past Saturday he put up 455 yards uh, two touchdowns one interception um, their offensive uh, game plan really was strong they're their lead running back uh, ran for 136 yards and two touchdowns. So I think this is a, a, a very well-coached, uh, dynamic, uh, balanced team. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if UCLA continues to be successful. And this is one of the few marks on their, on their schedule, because I don't think that it's a case of UCLA being bad or, you know, Fresno State uh, being uh, overrated. I think, I think Fresno State just matched up really well with them. Well, and it continues the narrative, Warren, of the Mountain West just owning the Pac-12 this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Fresno's schedule and they will play Nevada, who has already beaten Cal, and they will play San Diego State, who has already beaten uh, Utah and Arizona. And so it's just the, the Mountain West has just... Um, has taken it to the Pac-12 in, in some of these interconference games. And, uh, you know, credit to them. They're, they're, those teams are, are stepping up to the challenge and competing with the big boys. Yeah, and so uh, that was certainly one of the big games and obviously one of the, the bigger Pac-12 storylines. The other one probably being the, uh, the, the matchup between BYU and Arizona State, uh, number 23 BYU defeated number 19 Arizona State uh, 27 to 17. And uh, I think it was a pretty, uh, a pretty thorough win for this BYU team against 
uh, Arizona State. And I'm, I'm wondering, Mark, uh, are things already starting to fall apart for this Arizona State team, or were they just not as good as uh, maybe the preseason hype suggested that they might be? I think it's a little early to jump to that conclusion. This was their first loss, and it was on the road to a, a what we already know is a good team. You know, I mentioned the Mountain West dominating. B, uh, BYU is a former member of the Mountain West, and they've now beaten three Pac-12 teams to start their year, Arizona, Utah, and Arizona State, and they've held them all to 17 points or less. And so I think BYU has a legitimate defense. I think they're doing enough offensively to get the win. Uh, this game also had a uh, one of those crazy, bizarre plays where BYU threw an interception. You've got a defender running it back. Looks like he might be running it back for a pick six. The BYU running back chases him down from behind and slaps the ball loose, and the BYU quarterback jumps on it, and they retain possession in, in a critical juncture of the game. And then on instant replay, it shows that it probably should have been overturned because the ASU guy had stepped out of bounds right before he had the ball knocked loose. And so they, the, the Sun Devils didn't get the, the call that they should have gotten. And so, you know, that's one play where if that happens, the whole, the whole rest of the game might be different because of the time and the score when that happens. So I don't, I don't read too much into the outcome of the Sun Devils. I think if you're doing like a power rankings in the Pac-12, uh, you would still feel like Arizona State has got to be what one of the top five teams in the conference, if you're trying to figure out the teams most likely to win the league, uh, you would mention them ahead of a lot of other teams. And I don't think losing on the road to BYU is, is something uh, to be ashamed about. I, I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, they got Colorado this week who didn't look that imposing, lost 30 to nothing to, to Minnesota. So uh, if, if they get back on, on the right track with, with a nice win, against Colorado, I would assume they'll be a factor in, in the Pac-12 South. Yeah, the Pac-12 South is really um, looking like it could be in some real trouble with uh, Utah continuing to slide, UCLA getting its first loss. Of course, USC lost uh, two weeks ago to Stanford. Arizona uh, has been a disaster, as we all expected they would be. And uh, Colorado has now lost two games in a row. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, this past weekend, only one team in the Pac-12 South won, and that was USC, which has got its own set of problems. So, uh, you know, just looking at this BYU schedule before we move on, they have already beaten three Pac-12 teams, as you mentioned, uh, and they've got two more left on the schedule. Uh, Washington State and USC at the end of the season. Mark, what's the what's the likelihood that they could sweep the Pac-12? Boy, uh, sweep the Pac-12. I I think I I think I would make them a pretty solid favorite over the Cougs from what we've seen of Washington State thus far. They are playing that in Pullman, which strange things happen in Pullman. Um, that isn't a stretch of games for BYU that is, you know, could be a difficult stretch for them. Boise State, Baylor, Washington State, Virginia, like none of those are, are gimmies. And so going on the road to Pullman in the midst of that could prove some challenge. But I, I think they should be Washington State. The interesting thing is, is at USC at, in the last game of the season, 
And we just have no idea where USC as a program is going to be. And, and you, could, you could talk me into anything at this point. You could talk me into the interim coach, Dante Williams, uh, taking this team and kind of um, developing this nobody believes in us mentality and that they could, be, have, they could have clinched a spot in the Pac-12 championship game by then. Like, I would believe that. And you could also tell me that the wheels fall off and this is a team that's like, six and five going into that game and you know they've pretty much given up on the season it feels like and and it's a disaster and and they've been turned down by urban meyer and chris peterson and anybody else that they've Mm -hmm. offered the job to like i would believe any scenario for usc uh right now at this point and uh so can can byu beat usc yes um, USC should have a talent edge over BYU. And so I would think if USC is coming into that game with momentum, if they're coming into that game, riding a winning streak, I would say that they should be, they should be favored then. But if you're just basing it off the first three weeks in the season, I think you'd have to give the edge to BYU. Well, anytime, any place, as they like to say, congrats to BYU for, for starting off the season three and against the PAC 12. Continuing on in the Pac-12, uh, in continuing a theme of disgraceful losses by the Pac-12, uh, starting, of course, with the University of Washington, Arizona loses to uh, North Arizona University 21-19. Stanford uh, beats Vanderbilt uh, 41-23. Of course, we mentioned Oregon, uh, Cal defeated uh, Colorado State 42 to 30. USC defeated Washington State 45 to 14. Oregon State put up uh, big numbers 42 to zero against uh, Oregon State. And then Colorado, after a strong showing against uh, Texas A&M, gets throttled by Minnesota 30 to zero. and uh, and then to me the big the 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 big story is Utah losing in overtime triple overtime to San Diego State University, and now subsequently Mark, uh, it's it's come out that the starting quarterback Charlie Brewer, who was benched uh, midway through that game, has now announced that he has left the Utah program. What on earth is going on there? Do you have any idea? So this is only a guess uh, on the on the Brewer situation, but I'm guessing he has not utilized a redshirt season yet. And if you if you opt out of a season basically before, I think you get four games. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you opt out of a season at this point and kind of declare it to be a redshirt season, you can then save your eligibility and transfer. This is similar to what happened when Kelly Bryant was the starter at Clemson. And they decided to pull the trigger and move Trevor Lawrence into the starting spot as a freshman. Kelly Bryant was a senior. It was his last season. He wanted to kind of make it meaningful. He didn't want to end his career as a backup. And so he preserved the rest of the season and he, and he transferred to Missouri where he finished out a season. In that case, there was a quarterback who had, had been at the program for several years, I think had a certain relationship with Dabo Sweeney where it was, almost a gesture of respect to Kelly Bryant to make that change when he still had time to make that decision and and transfer. This seems a little more like a guy transfers into a program, 
and from what I understood, like barely won the starting job. I mean, was in like a competition. They weren't naming him as a starter, even though he'd been a starter for three years at Baylor. He wins the job, doesn't play particularly well. They lose two out of three to start the year. He gets benched and now he's out. And I don't know if that is, if that was, you know, with Kyle Whittingham's blessing or if this has kind of created a bit of a rift or, or what, I'm, I'm not in on the, the Utah details, but from afar, that's what it looks like to me as a guy who looks at the writing on the wall, realizes that this is his last season as a college football player. And if he wants to preserve any of it as a, as a starter for a major team, he's not going to be able to do it in, in Utah. And so essentially what he's doing is he's, he's, he's quitting on his team. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the reality of it. Like you can, you can frame it in, in different ways. And, and it certainly, I think, um, you know, matters if you have the, the support of your coach in making that kind of a decision. But um, I can't think this is what Utah signed up for when they, when they offered him a spot to, to transfer in and, and compete for the starting job. But, but now they're going to move forward with the guy that they've got instead and, and see what they can make of, of this season after a couple, couple tough losses to start the year. Yeah, you know, of course, you never know what might happen moving forward. Cameron Rising, who is uh, slated to take that starting role, may come in and ignite that offense. Utah's defense begins to tighten up. And, you know, by midseason, they're the the Utah that we've come to to know and expect. But, uh, you know, akin to the Huskies, certainly not the start that we expected at all from this Utah team that, has always been so well coached and disciplined. You just don't expect these kind of storylines coming out of a, a program like Utah. Well, um, Mark, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming games for our teams, the Dogs and the Ducks. Why don't you walk us through what uh, to expect for this uh, this uh, head-to-head matchup? heavyweight between Oregon and the Arizona Wildcats. Yeah. So conference opener is always kind of an interesting time because it does feel like uh, teams in your own conference, they have a little more familiarity with you. And so there's kind of uh, the opportunity. Sometimes um, we see kind of some upsets or some upset scares on the first weekend of conference play, especially for teams playing on the road. So in that sense, I'm, I'm glad that Oregon is, is hosting this one against Arizona. Bad things seem to ha- happen when, when the Ducks go to the desert. So uh, they're hosting Arizona. Arizona's 0-3, and I think pretty widely considered the worst team in the Pac-12. And I know they just lost to an FCS team in Northern Arizona. But I don't think that Arizona is, like, laughably bad. This isn't a team that's getting you know, blown up. They lost to BYU uh, 24 to 16 to start the season, which is pretty much the same way that Utah and Arizona State lost to BYU. Um, they did lose to San Diego State 38 to 14, which is a little more convincing, but still not necessarily, um, you know, just getting torched. So I, I think their offense has, has yet to score 20 points. And that's obviously the big concern if you're an Arizona fan and the big reason for confidence if you're a Duck fan is that it does seem like the Oregon defense should be able to really control their offense, uh, which if, if they do that, then um, then you feel pretty good about the Ducks' chances. So I think coming off of the elation of that Ohio State win, 
to then have your follow-up against Stony Brook where you just kind of can, can take a deep breath and then have a conference opener at home against the worst team in the league. It's kind of a good transition um, to get, kind of, yeah. yeah, to kind of get, get your head back around in case some of these guys have been reading their, their press clippings a little too much. Um, you know, I think most of the teams in the PAC 12 could beat Oregon on the right day. I think Arizona is probably uh, less likely than most to do that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see how the Ducks respond. I'll be interested to see if they, you know, really take it to them like like a top five team should, or if if there's a little bit of a of a hangover still and and it takes them a while to really kind of get going. Yeah, I mean, it seems like with Arizona, uh, you know, wild things can always happen out in the desert, but you know, this is this is at home, and I think facing Arizona at home should not pose any threat to this Oregon Duck team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ty Thompson's not uh, tossing it around a little bit by the end of the third quarter in, in this one. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that um, that Jetfish is doing a good job in trying to turn this program around. And uh, one of their receivers, Barry Hill, has been putting up some really nice numbers and, you know, made some good uh, good plays against the University of Washington last year, especially at the end of the game. So he'd be he'll be one to watch just to see, you know, what what he can do against that Oregon uh, defensive backfield. Uh, of course, uh, is it Vernon McKinley? Uh, McKinley? Verone. Yeah, Veron McKinley. Veron McKin- yeah, Veron McKinley, you know, got two picks last week now is yeah. uh, tied, I think, for the lead in interceptions in the Pac-12. Um, so that'll be a nice matchup to keep an eye on is uh, maybe uh, McKinley and the rest of that defensive backfield versus uh, Barry Hill and and uh, those other wide receivers there. Um, as far as the Huskies matchup go, goes, this is certainly uh, no gimme for the dogs. Uh, both teams come into this game one and two and uh, the, the Cal Bears are carrying a two-game winning streak against the Huskies. Of course, uh, two seasons ago was the, uh, you know, the, the dreaded uh, lightning game, which uh, didn't begin until right around 1 a.m. on yeah. Saturday morning. And, uh, and then the year before that was uh, the game that the Huskies went to Cal really started off poorly it was raining and uh, they ended up uh, pulling uh, Jake Browning out putting Jake Hayner in and he had a miserable interception and it just turned into a total disaster for uh, the 2018 Husky football team but now coming into this game this is actually Mark the 100th matchup between these two teams They're the only two teams in the Pac-12 to um, have uh, been members in the Pac-12 since the the conference was created in 1915. So, uh, you know, a lot of unique little history and storylines there. Um, I think the, the, the big threat for this particular team 
is um, the experience of senior quarterback Chase Garbers. Um, he's, uh, he's playing really well right now, probably having his best season thus far. And uh, although this Cal defense is not what it has been the last couple of years, any Justin Wilcox defense is going to be tough, especially it seems against this Husky offense. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens on Saturday, 6.30 p.m. Uh, will this Husky offense revert back to uh, some of its offensive misgivings in the first couple of weeks, or will it continue to attack even against perhaps some tighter coverages and uh, more aggressive defensive, uh, you know, defensive schemes. Uh, so some good, good competition there. I am going to take the Huskies in this game. I do think that that they uh, they continue on the momentum that they built. Um, so I'm going to take I'm going to take the Huskies, thirty five to, let's say this this feels like a score that I'm, I I often. I often uh, draw on, but let's say 35 to 24. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm going to go with this. Uh, I feel like if we can, if we can get 30 points, we win this game. No problem. If we get stuck in some sort of a offensive spin cycle where we're just punting and turning the ball over, it, it will be a long day for this Husky team. Yeah, I'm looking at, uh, you know, Cal's three games. They gave up over 400 passing yards this last week to Sacramento State. Now, a lot of that was kind of, you know, garbage time where teams right. playing behind and they're throwing every down. But they also gave up over 300 passing yards to Nevada in their season opener. Um, TCU scored 34 points on them, didn't throw for as many yards, but maybe because they didn't need to. So it does seem like there's yardage to be had, especially through the air. And with the Huskies kind of newfound commitment to that, uh, I think that's going to be really interesting to see if that transfers and if they're really aggressive. I'm like, this is one of those games where I'm just, I'm very curious to see what does the first series look like for the Huskies on offense? Um, because if it's like two carries up the middle and then a throw on third and eight, you're, you're going to be, you know, scratching your, your hair. And, uh, but I think, uh, I think there's yardage to be had in the air against the bears. And these teams feel like to me, Warren, like they're in very similar places, like mm -hmm. both kind of disappointing starts to the season. Yep. You know, Washington obviously had the higher expectation, but, but Cal was kind of sleepery. They were kind of having that feeling of like, Hey, we've got a four-year four year starter at quarterback, and we're feeling ourselves a little bit. This is our breakthrough. And when you get to the conference opener after a start that these two teams have had, there's a chance to kind of hit the reset button. And if you get that big win against a division opponent, it can kind of lead you into a, a stronger second half of the season. But it feels like whoever loses this game, falling to one and three, you're already behind the eight ball in the, in the conference title race. Uh, I mean, it just feels like that's going to be a devastating loss for for whoever does not come out ahead. So a lot a lot riding on it early in the year for both these teams. No doubt, no doubt. You know, um, there's a if you listen to uh, Dave Softy Mahler on KJR, there's a there's a soundbite that he uses a lot. It's a from an interview that he did with Chris Peterson a few years ago, where Chris Peterson said stats are for losers. And uh, it certainly, 
uh, prompted a lot of laughter and, and, and humor from, from that. But, uh, you know, I don't know if that's ever been more true than this season for this Husky team. You know, the statistics don't tell the whole story. Interestingly, no. Mark, um, Washington enters the week leading the Pac-12 in scoring defense, passing efficiency defense, first down de- defense, and third down efficiency defense, while simultaneously Dylan Morris leads the Pac-12 in completions per game, passing yards, and passing yards per game. And all that to say, it's completely irrelevant to what we've seen thus far this season. Yeah, a lot of a lot of empty numbers there. <laughs> oh yeah, you can make the numbers say what you want, but the the eye test says that this Husky team has not played well this year, and both the offense uh, in terms of running the ball and the defense in terms of stopping the run need to pick things up or those uh, lofty statistics are going to amount to a bad uh, win-loss ratio. Yeah. All right, let's look ahead and look look at the rest of the top 25. Uh, You know, I think um, going into this season, Mark, one of the reasons for my own personal optimism for the, the Washington Huskies was really based on the fact that what I saw was uh, the the potential for some regression among the usual uh, contenders in in the the college football playoffs, and really my suspicions have been confirmed thus far into the season. Of course, we know Ohio State is not where they were last year, losing to to Oregon, but also. Uh, just not looking as dynamic against uh, Minnesota, and uh, and this past week, Oklahoma ha- is three and zero, but has struggled in a couple of their games against uh, lower ranked, lower quality competition. Clemson, of course, has their first loss and also really struggled offensively this weekend against Georgia State. Um, Georgia Tech. Excuse me, Georgia Tech. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> Georgia it was only Tech. so bad. It would be a lot worse if it was Georgia State. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes, Georgia Tech and uh, and even Alabama um, had a, a bit of a tough time against Florida. Although Florida, I think, is a a, a pretty strong team. So, uh, Mark, what what's what's your thoughts? I mean, is could it be any better for the number three Oregon Ducks now looking at? Um, some of the disarray that's not normally there uh, in those top, you know, top five teams. Well, it's certainly early. So I don't know if this is a valid prediction or not, but uh, I think back to 2007 is the like poster child for just a crazy college football season. Mm. And I I pointed this out in my, in my blog. So uh, excuse me if I'm repeating myself to the few listeners that both listen to our podcast and read my blog, but I think it's worth bearing. So 2007, if you remember, Warren, that was the year USC preseason number one, and they lost to Stanford when Stanford was a 41-point underdog. Um, That was the year that LSU won the national championship despite losing two different games in triple overtime Mm -hmm. uh, to Kentucky and Arkansas. And then the following teams were ranked either first or second in the country that year. Cal... Ohio State, South Florida, 
Boston College, shout out to Matt Ryan, uh, Oregon with my man Dennis Dixon, mm. Kansas and Missouri, and West Virginia. All of those teams at some point in the year were nursing like realistic national title hopes mm. um, at some point in the season. I don't know that we're going to reach that level of craziness, but when I look at Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State, especially being vulnerable, Alabama looks better than those teams, but they're in a conference that right now has seven teams in the top 25. And so they could be better and still lose two games like that wouldn't totally shock me. So it's not just for Oregon, which is obviously the lens I'm looking through. But if you're a fan of Penn State, if you're a fan of Iowa, if you're a fan of Cincinnati, you know, if you're a fan of any one of these teams, like it is kind of shaping up like this is the year where there may be some disarray and one or two teams that aren't kind of one of those normal contenders is able to to slip into a spot and and find themselves in a playoff game maybe even in in the championship game despite not being the type of team that you would uh peg as a contender for those spots uh on a normal basis so I'm, I'm hopeful, not just as a, as a Duck fan, obviously I'm hoping the Ducks can kind of take advantage of that disarray, but just as a, as a college football fan, I think it's so much more fun when there is just kind of week to week chaos. And so, uh, you know, I would love it if Oklahoma goes down to West Virginia this week, that would make things so much more interesting. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be rooting for it at every step of the way, whether the Ducks stand to benefit or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a year where teams that have been on the outside looking in have got to be thinking, this is our opportunity. Of course, we mentioned really any team from the Pac-12, which it looks like this year it's going to be Oregon, if any, are going to have a chance to, to get into that CFP. Um, but what about uh, Jim Harbaugh and those Michigan Wolverines after – uh, I mean, Jim Harbaugh has never beaten Ohio State. Now that they're ranked number 19 in the nation, uh, 3-0, and of course, we know they beat UW uh, this, this weekend. They also uh, destroyed a, a weak, weak Northern Illinois team. Uh, but they've got to be thinking, uh, Michigan uh, fans have got to be thinking, if there's ever a year for us to, to beat Ohio State, this has got to be it, right? I mean, we were saying that about Michigan a couple of years ago, 2018, Michigan came into that game fourth in the country. If they win it, basically the, the road is open for them to get a playoff spot. Ohio state was 10th. So it did feel like Michigan has the better team. Now that game was in the horseshoe in Columbus, but Michigan, that was the year that they were supposed to do it. And they lost 62 to 39. <laughs> And then they came back the next year in Ann Arbor, both teams in the top 10 again, and Michigan lost at home 56 to 27. Uh, that was a top 10 team both years that just got completely dominated by the Buckeyes. So I'm at the stage where I don't care how many games Ohio State loses between now and then, and whether Michigan has an undefeated record or not. I'm not going to predict Michigan beating Ohio State until I actually see them do it because I think there is some major baggage in that rivalry that will be in the air in that stadium uh, when those two teams play regardless of what the records are. 
Well, you may be right. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of wisdom in, in hedging your bets against a Michigan upset over Ohio State. Uh, but it feels like for this Jim Harbaugh led crew, this is this is now or never time. If they're going to beat Ohio State, they've got to do it now, or it's going to be, I think, a total rebuild at the end of the season. The, the one thing I will say about that, Warren, just about as it relates to kind of our two teams, is Michigan was unranked to start the year, and they were unranked when they played the Huskies. And I think, I think it's clear that this team is going to have a, a really good ranking for the rest of the season. So I think that loss to Michigan, even though the, the, the score is never going to look prettier, but I think at the end of the year, a loss to Michigan is not going to um, to feel like what it was at the beginning of the year when Michigan was coming off a bad season and just kind of looked like they were in disarray. I think Michigan's really good. And I think similarly, that win for Oregon seemed to kind of be like, oh, this is a win over a college football playoff contender over a national title contender. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if if this Ohio State team finishes, you know, nine and three and we're, and is not playing in the Big Ten title game. And as a result, that win for Oregon, you know, well, I, I think it's always going to stand up as a good win. Beating Ohio State on the road is always going to be a good win. It may not kind of be quite the defining win of the season, um, you know, as, as things play out. So th that'll just be kind of interesting to watch from the perspective of Oregon and Washington fans. Yeah, so here's an interesting question. Let's say Ohio State does go nine and three. Um, who finishes with the higher record, Ohio State or Fresno State? If if Fresno State wins out, well, I mean, let's just leave that part of it un, unknown. But if if Ohio State finishes nine to three, do you think Fresno State will finish with a higher record than oh Ohio nine State? nine and three or better? So that would mean Fresno has to get through the Mountain West with one loss essentially if they're going to go 10 Most and likely. two yeah um would a 10 and two uh, fresno state be ranked higher than a nine and three ohio state i don't think they would be but they should be i would say yeah. um i mean part of that matters who who that loss is to you know if it's if it's to hawaii that's going to be treated worse than if it's to you know boise state or san diego state but um you know that the mountain west is not like going to be a cakewalk boise state San Diego State, San Jose State, Wyoming, Utah State, all of those teams could beat Fresno on the right day, I think. Um, so I, I don't think Fresno is necessarily going to run the table, even though I think they're really good, just because I think that that league actually has four or five teams that are that are pretty good. But uh, I've got them I've got them ranked ahead of Ohio State right now in my own top 25, just based on the three game sample size we have. I think it's objectively true that Fresno State has looked better than Ohio State through three games, um, but who knows whether that holds up. So, Mark, if I were to say, uh, you know, if I were to rank the, the, the top five schools that have the best recruiting bed to, 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 to take from immediately, like surrounding the school, I think you'd have to include USC, Texas, Georgia, and LSU, and then number five, Miami. And uh, once again, Miami loses uh, to Michigan State, 
you know, what is it going to take for this Miami program to regain some of their, their former dominance? I mean, it's one of the most talent laden, uh, you know, recruiting hotbeds in the country. Why can't they get it done? Now, are you trying to bait me into suggesting that maybe this where this leads is they hire their their noteworthy alum Mario Cristobal to come back to Miami and and restore the glory of the Canes? Is the, is this a trick question here, Warren? I, you know, nothing would make me happier than to see Cristobal leave our conference. Um, but I I I am genuinely curious because I mean, for me, I grew up, you know, enjoying the the Huskies, you know, '91 national championship run but really all during that era of college football, you know, it was the U the university of Miami was just a powerhouse. And it didn't, I mean, they had three coaches that won national champions. Well, four that won national championships just in my childhood, um, let alone, you know, uh, later on with um, the early 2000 teams. So, yeah, I'm just genuinely curious what's what's the issue there and and how does that change? I I don't know um entirely. I mean, I think it looked like Mark Richt was on the way back with them. You know, they were they were ranked I think as high as second in the nation one season under him. They went to the Orange Bowl. Uh they won 10 games. They had the turnover chain which seemed like a very Miami thing, which yep. has now been copied by everybody's got their own version of it, which I yeah. think like, no, no, nobody else should, this, this was Miami's thing. They came up with the idea first, like let them do it, but it fit Miami. And it's weird because yeah. Mark Richt is this like very clean cut man of faith, you know, um, doesn't swear. Like he seems to be the opposite of like Miami culture with under right. Jimmy Johnson and Dennis Erickson and everything like that. But he seemed to kind of be poking at that. And then immediately the next year, uh, I mean, that season did not end well. I think they got blown out in their bowl game. And then he comes back the next year and they go seven and six and then he retires and it was just kind of clear his heart wasn't in it. And now they've hired Manny Diaz and it just hasn't really, you know, they haven't gotten the traction. So I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I do think somebody like a Cristobal could turn them into a monster again. I think the right guy with the right approach um, if it's all about bringing in players, you know, um, could bring in the players, but, but I don't know with some of these programs that develop kind of a toxic culture around them, like Florida state's another example, they've got plenty of recruits around mm -hmm. them, uh, on that team right now are better players than the teams they're losing to. They lost to Jacksonville state. They just lost by 21 points to wake forest. Like there are not better recruits on Wake Forest's roster than there are on Florida State's roster. So there is there is a question I think about like how does a toxic culture kind of get created and and how do you unpack that and disentangle all of that and and so if you're a guy like Mario Cristobal and you're riding pretty high at the school you're at and you're getting good recruits and you've got a really really good coaching staff around you even though it's your alma mater, you may look at that and say, gosh, that athletic department seems to be a mess. The fan base seems to have unrealistic expectations. Um, maybe, maybe you don't want to go there. And, and at least that's what I'm telling myself, hopefully. But, um, but I do think it's, it's, it's hard to kind of to take on some of those massive uh, reclamation projects once a certain culture sets in. 
You know, it, there's certainly been a lot of fun at uh, Chris Peterson's expense around his OKGs, his our kind of guys. But I think it does speak a lot to what you're saying, creating a culture, creating an environment where you've got guys that really love football, really are committed, they're disciplined, uh, they're trustworthy, they, they show up early, they work hard. Uh, yeah, there's something about that that, um, you know, can take a team with lesser talent a lot further than you might anticipate. Well, hey, Mark, with our remaining time, let's just transition to um, some other storylines. Uh, NFL, the uh, Seattle Seahawks uh, fall apart at the finish line against uh, the Tennessee Titans. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to to watch that game or, or take in any any NFL action, but uh, what what what's your take now about this Seattle Seahawks team, who are now one and one? Uh, they looked great against uh, the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, really for much of the game against the Titans, they, they looked like they were going to dominate and win. And then uh, Derrick Henry um, took over and the, the wheels came off. Uh, I mean, you nailed it right there. Is the best running back in football. And running backs have a shelf life now where sometimes they have great seasons and then they just kind of fall off a cliff. And I think after week one, People were kind of writing Derrick Henry off and, and wondering maybe he'd hit that point in his career where he'd fallen off the cliff. And, and, and then he served a reminder that, no, he's still, he's still capable of, of dominating a game in a way that no other running back really is. And, and the Seahawks were, unfortunately, the team on the other end of that uh, in a really, really tough loss for them. But fortunately it's, it's only week two. If you look around the landscape, there's a ton of teams that are one and one there's teams that had no business winning their first game that turned around and lost and teams that blew games in week one that, that rectified it in, in week two. And so this, this won't tell the story of their season. It's only one game, but, um, but I, I, I just chalk it up to a really brilliant player just kind of showed that he's still one of the best players in the league. Absolutely. I, I, I think Derrick Henry is far from being done. Uh, in fact, I think the thing about Derrick Henry is that if you go back and look at the way that he's performed over the last three or four years, as the season goes on and teams are more injured and, and more tired, and especially when teams are eliminated from the playoffs, yeah, you're going to see Derrick Henry put up more games like today than than uh, you know, maybe any other running back because it's as we I think we've talked about this before, but it's a business decision every time you try to tackle that man. He is yeah. he is no joke. Uh, well, yeah, as we mentioned, the the Seahawks um, ended up losing in overtime to the Titans this weekend. They've got uh, the Minnesota Vikings coming into town, who are zero and two, but have really shown themselves to be a, a pretty decent team. Uh, they, they lost a tight one uh, over the weekend to uh, this Arizona Cardinals team that I think is must watch TV. Yeah. And then uh, they, they also lost in overtime to start the season against uh, Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. So this will be, I think this would be a good test for the Seahawks. They, they certainly can't, um, they can't take this team as an 0-2 team for granted. 
but Mark, what else stood out to you from this this past weekend of NFL football? Well, I, I was just going to point out on that front. Um, you know, I just said, hey, it's only it's only week one. You don't have to be too concerned, or only week two. But you just pointed out the Vikings have been on the cusp of winning their first two games and didn't. So they're a team that's going to be especially hungry, especially desperate, like, you know, um, and, and then if you look at the rest of the NFC West, which we've talked about is mm -hmm. the most loaded division in football, everybody else is two and O they're the, the few two and O teams seem to all be in the NFC West. The Cardinals have got the O and two Jaguars this week who look like the worst team in football. So there's a good chance the Cardinals are three and O. Uh, the 49ers play on Sunday night against the Packers. We have no idea what we're going to get week to week out of the Packers. Uh, they mm -hmm. seem like a soap opera and it's, I guessing it's going to be that way all season. Um, so don't know what to do with that for the Niners. Uh, the really tough game is the Rams have the Buccaneers, um, but they have them at home. So that's going to be a really tough, tough game for the Rams, but there is a sense now where, um, okay, you, you, you lost one, maybe you should have won um, to a, a decent team with a really great player. Now you're playing a team that's been struggling. This is the type of game where you've got to go on the road and you've got to, you've got to come out with a win because to be one and two, um, you know, then, then you're looking at more of an uphill climb just to compete with the teams in your own division. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, this is, this is no easy endeavor. Dalvin Cook is probably, in the top three or four running backs in the NFL right now. He put up 130 yards last week in their loss. Uh, so whatever issues resulted in uh, giving up 180 yards to Derrick Henry last week will need to get resolved in order yeah. to, to stop this, this uh, Minnesota offense. Kirk Cousins, uh, you know, Thielen, they've got some weapons out there. But you mentioned um, the NFC West. It's interesting just looking uh, between the two conferences. Of course, the NFC West, uh, the 49ers, Rams, and Cardinals are, are all 2-0. and The Seahawks are 1-1. One one. They potentially could have been 2-0. and But yeah. then um, in the AFC, the AFC West, you've got the Raiders at 2-0, and uh, surprisingly, I think. Uh, the Broncos, surprisingly, at 2-0. and The Chiefs, which we know are going to be a strong team, with Patrick Mahomes and company at one and one and uh, the Justin Herbert led chargers at one and one as well. It's, it's uh, really kind of fun to see so many West coast teams really thriving right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very fun. And uh, you know, you've got the expanded playoff now um, where you, seven teams from each conference get in instead of six. And so you do look at those Western divisions and say, gosh, how many, how many playoff teams could there be? Could all four teams from one of those divisions make the playoffs? Could you have three teams from one of those divisions um, get in the playoffs? That, that, those are real possibilities because there are other divisions like the AFC South or the NFC East, where it does feel like the winner is probably going to be like a nine and eight <laughs> and, you know, just kind of be the last team standing. And so, uh, it's going to be fun to to track all season long because I do think those are the two best divisions in football. Well, uh, looking ahead, what what games stand out to you in week three for this NFL season? Well, we mentioned Rams Bucks. I mean, that's uh, and and then you mentioned the uh, 
the Western division. So that we have the chargers chiefs in the AFC West, uh, Herbert and Mahomes going toe to toe. So those, those are two, especially that I'm, I'm going to be uh, interested in, in seeing the outcome too, in addition to, to seeing how the, uh, the Seahawks handle themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be a big game. You mentioned the, the Packers and the 49ers. Um, you know, with the, the 49ers, it's amazing to me. It seems like they have maybe one of the worst, uh, you know, recent in, in recent history, one of the worst rashes of injuries over the last couple of years. And once again, um, I mean, they were they were drawing on their fourth and fifth string running backs to try to finish out the game uh, this past weekend. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting if, if um, Elijah Mitchell can uh, continue to take the, the lead running back role for this uh, 49ers team. And like you said, what do we make of this Aaron Rodgers-led uh, team against, uh, I think, a pretty decent defense with the New Orleans Saints? Rodgers looked terrible against uh, the the Lions he looked like classic Aaron Rodgers you have to think against uh, a really good 49ers defense this could be a long day for for the Packers yeah and that's where I just go back to I have no idea what to expect from the Packers I mean it wouldn't surprise me to see the Niners defense take it to them and the Packers look look you know out of sync like they did in week one and and all of that talk starts up again um, it also wouldn't surprise me if Rodgers looks great. And, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I really just don't know week to week. Um, I mean, this, it, it would not surprise me if Aaron Rodgers has the best season or the worst season of his career this year. I think both, both are in play through, through two weeks of the season. Um, and uh, it, it, yeah, whether, whether you, uh, like the Packers or not, I guess is is going to determine how much you enjoy that um, factor. But uh, I I could see it going in in two very different directions, and I think I think we'll know maybe by the end of sept- September what we're in for there. Uh, but but just based on two weeks, I'd, I'd be reluctant to make any sort of prediction on them. Agreed. Agreed. Well, as we wrap things up today, um, I think uh, there's certainly a little bit more uh, levity in the air after the Huskies win. Uh, If we can uh, pull off this win against Cal and even up to two and two, it'll certainly make the dog and duck show a lot more uh, enjoyable and interesting heading into Pac-12 season. Uh, Mark, any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Well, other, uh, no, other than just, I'm looking forward to Pac-12 play, Warren. I think uh, it's always fun to see conference play get going. Obviously, with the Ducks coming out of the non-conference world, um, Ducks are flying high, and it's it's a fun season, and so it'll be fun to kind of follow that. But I think just looking around the conference as a whole, you know, I'm curious, I'm curious what the Beavers look like against USC. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, how the Pac-12 South sorts itself out. I'm, I'm curious who, how the winner of the, the Cal Washington game kind of looks because I think the winner of that game, you know, could be a factor. So uh, it's, it's a fun time of year to, to get into conference play and 
uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Saturday night is going to be a lot of fun. I think there's four different Pac-12 games that are going to be overlapping at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned, the, the Oregon Ducks are now ranked number three in the nation. And, um, you know, that's got to feel good for Oregon Duck fans. But I wonder, uh, you know, what would what would I think it's pretty obvious that that at this point it's it's the, the playoffs are bust. If you're an Oregon fan, um, what would constitute a, a disappointing season now that you've you know beaten Ohio State and you're in the top three? Um, you know, if you guys finish with two losses and and are, uh, you know, ranked number nine in the nation, is that a is that a a successful season or, um, you know, feel like a, a major letdown now? That's a great question right now. Um, I think it would depend who the two losses were to and how they came about. Uh, so I think with our own rivalry, you know, between the two of us friends, uh, if one of those losses were to the Huskies, that would constitute as a disappointment. I think after losing to the Beavers last year to lose a second time to the Beavers would constitute as a disappointment. Um, you know, I don't know if they go on the road and they lose to uh, UCLA in a really fun game in late October. Uh, I guess that would only be the first loss, but you know, I wouldn't. Well, yeah, let's say it. let's say they used to lose to UCLA and then they lose in the Pac-12 championship game. Yeah, so if they lose to UCLA twice, um, would that be a disappointment? I think. I mean, I, I will. I will be disappointed. Yes, I will be. Yeah. I will be sad. I don't know that I will be like disgusted by by the you know, performance, I think, again, I'll be kind of curious how the games fall out. But there's also part of me that if, if it's UCLA that ends up winning the conference this year, I'm going to be a little stoked because there's still part of me that roots for Chip Kelly, you know, like there's still yeah. a part of me that like kind of wants to see him uh, have his way with teams just because I think it's fun. It's entertaining. Yeah. And I still have some some fond memories for him. It, it would be a little hard to see that come at Oregon's expense multiple times in, in a season. Um, so you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're putting me in a tough spot because it does, it does feel like Oregon should be favored in the rest of their games this year. And at the same time, I don't think they're the type of team that's just going to run the table. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not winning games by 30 or 40 points. They've won two games by seven points. So that would seem to me to think that they're going to have a couple games like that, that, that don't go their way. Uh, I don't think there's that significant of a gap between them and Stanford or, you know, uh, teams of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I think at this point, uh, it, it would certainly, I think it would certainly be a successful season if they, if they win the PAC 12 again, um, I mm -hmm. certainly think it would, I would consider it a successful season if they, um, you asked if they finish in the top 10, if they finish in the top 10, of course, that's a successful season. Like, you know, we can't take something like that for granted. So, uh, yeah. But that also means there are probably going to be a couple moments of heartbreak along the way, which has, has been the history. Comes with the territory. Yeah. It's, that's what college football is all about, unless your name is not uh, Nick Saban. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up with that. Uh, for all my uh, Husky friends out there, I'll say go dogs. 
And for all my duck friends, I'll say go ducks. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dog and Duck Show.